Right, as you turn to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. Here we are just over a year after we, uh, we started existing as a church. One question I've gotten over the last year is, uh, when did you guys launch? And in the church world, church planting world, launching means you gather every Sunday. And uh, because we're centered around missional communities, we're centered around doing life every day as a church. Uh, I tell people well, we launched in April of 2014. That's when we started our three missional communities. And uh, they say, so you're meeting every Sunday. No, we're not meeting every Sunday like that. So when do you launch? We have launched. And people don't get it. So here we are, launched after a year as missional communities in the city of Monroe. Now we're gathering every Sunday and alternating core group training with Sunday worship gatherings. And uh, some of you know the story of how we got to this point. Uh, one day we need to put it on paper so we don't forget it. We're getting older, we may forget things. Um, but essentially it was the God's Spirit working through four families, or more specifically four men. Uh, of course, Scott Kendrick and I, as well as Paul Whaley at Summit Crossing in Huntsville. And bringing us together to a point where the Crossing Church came into existence. And if you were to talk to the four of us, you get four different perspectives on how God's Spirit was working in us and bringing us to this point. For me, one of the huge things God did in me over the last dozen years as I became a pastor and was pastoring two different churches is he put in in my heart a desire for healthy churches, for a healthy church. Uh, I got into pastoring, quickly began to see what the New Testament says a church should be, and I saw what I was experiencing in the churches I pastored, and was like, this this doesn't match up. And uh, then began to feel a lot of the pressure that pastors feel to have a growing, successful church. And you read things in the church growth movement, and some of that stuff is helpful and good. Some of that stuff is goofy and crazy. And so what do you, what do, you do? Do you give in to some of those temptations to kind of create this circus atmosphere? And, you know, I'll preach off the roof of the church if you get 100 people to show up next Sunday and those kind of silly things. And I was like, no, that's not really me. I'm not going to do that. And so God led me to people and resources and organizations that are all about healthy churches. And God gave me a passion to see a healthy church, believing that if a church is healthy, it's going to grow. It's going to reach people. It's going to see disciples made in the kingdom of God, God advance. Tons of research was done and has been done over the last couple of decades. Statistics that maybe you've heard, very uh, well-researched and popular. 75% of churches are plateaued or declining. 90% of churches, especially in our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, are fundamentally unhealthy. And so what does it mean to be a fundamentally healthy church? And could a church get there and stay there? Could we create a body of believers that we didn't just have routine ritual services, activities and programs, but we had life and we had depth. And we had made disciples who could make disciples. And there was unity and love as well as mission and sacrifice. That was strong in the God's word, but we weren't a mini Bible college that had the presence of the spirit, but we weren't doing kooky, crazy stuff. So, see all of this today in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, these essential qualities of a healthy church. See the agony Paul had to see this flourish in this church, the same desire that he would have for us today. Beginning in verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding 
and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so, Father, we do come and we ask for your help this morning as we, as we open your word. We thank you that your word is what gives us life. Your spirit is what gives us life. It's by your spirit alone that we're able to even understand scripture, make sense of it. It's by your spirit we're able to obey scripture. We're empowered to live it out. And so, Father, we, we need your spirit to come this morning and to overwhelm us with illumination, insight, truth. God, we don't want to just hear God talk. We don't want to hear a sermon. We want to hear the very voice of God speaking to the deepest part of our being. And so come, Holy Spirit, and do that today. Thank you for Christ who makes all this possible. We ask in his powerful, strong name. Amen. We finally come to chapter 2 of Colossians We've seen Paul lay in this foundation throughout the entire first chapter um, for the, the, the purpose of the letter that we're getting to in verse 3, that uh, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul had been laying the foundation for this purpose in verse 3 that he's going to begin to deal with explicitly through the rest of chapter 2. Now, Lord willing, uh, Kendrick is going to walk us through the rest of chapter 2 where he deals with these false teachers in the month of May, unless he uh, has his back go out or they get a kid suddenly one weekend, he'll be here on those two Sundays walking us through Colossians 2, dealing with the false teachers. Um, This is a church Paul had never been to. This is a church that was planted uh, because a guy named Epaphras heard Paul preaching the gospel in the city of Ephesus, brought the gospel back to the city that he was from, Colossae, and began to share the gospel and make disciples who made disciples, and a church was born. They are healthy. Paul opens the letter recognizing and thanking God for the health that he sees in them. But they're also being challenged, challenged by false teachers in the church to begin to look to something other than Jesus for spiritual life, hope, and joy. In other words, they were being challenged to find their spiritual experience in someone other than Christ. And so what Paul's been saying so far is, if you don't think Jesus is enough, then you don't know who Jesus is. Because once you see who Jesus is, then you find out Jesus is not just enough for salvation, he's enough for every single day. And then he closes out chapter 1, we looked at this a few weeks ago, by getting very personal with these believers, how he's suffered before them with joy, how he's all in to make them mature disciples of Jesus, because that in essence is who the church is, disciples of Jesus who make disciples And this is all worth the effort and energy and work that God allows us to do because he empowers us. So this is, there's nothing else more worthy for you to give your energy, your effort to, than to see disciples made, disciples matured in the body of Christ, in the church. There's nothing better to give your life to. And then chapter 2 opens with Paul saying something that as a pastor you kind of find it hard to believe. Essentially, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. I want you to know how hard I'm working for you. Like, pastors aren't supposed to say that. Look at how hard I'm working. It's like a joke in churches about how pastors don't work hard. Like, we only work one day a week. I've heard that joke like 10 million times over the last dozen years. Ha ha. 
You know, and it's also because the work that we do is spiritual in nature because we're not building houses and we're not mowing yards and, and doing things that produce tangible results always. And so there's a lot of invisible work going on. You know, we, we might spend 10 hours a week praying and it's like, what a waste of time that is. You're, not, you're just sitting there talking to God. You're not really doing anything. Not realizing all that God is doing through something like that and can do through something like that. But pastors are never supposed to like talk or mention or refer to how hard you actually work. Yet this is what Paul's doing. Look at how great a struggle I have for you. So it could be that Paul is giving notice to these false teachers. That he is heavily invested in these churches. He hadn't been there, right? And so maybe the false teachers are thinking, well, it's just Paul writing a letter. You know, it's just a letter. And Paul may be saying, look, I want y'all to know that um, I'm all in for these believers, heavily invested in them. I'm sending this letter, don't make me come in person. Because I will. Maybe that's why he's pointing out how much he's struggling and laboring for them. That's, that's just me thinking I could be completely wrong, completely dismiss that if that's ridiculous. But he's wanting them to know how much I care about these people. I'm working for their good. So just because I haven't been there doesn't mean I won't come. Paul is referring to the believers you see there in verse 1. Not only those at Colossae, but those at Laodicea, a city that's only about 10 or 15 miles away, a more predominant city in that region. And also for those who hadn't seen him face to face. He cared for them all. That's why he's mentioning his striving. And so for sure, maybe he's warning false teachers, for sure he's encouraging the believers. I hadn't seen you, but you need to know I am for you. I am all in for your good for your joy, for your benefit. The, the Greek word behind that word striving is the same word we get our word agony from. Which is why we talk about agonizing for a healthy church. Paul agonized for this church. He, he wasn't saying, I want you to know how I kind of piddle around for your good. How I kind of multitask for your good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing this letter to you while I'm watching the NBA game and I'm uh, dealing with my, my wife and kids. I'm doing all these other things. No, he's agonizing, striving, completely focused on them, all in for their benefit and their good. And as I thought about and prayed over this passage for the last several weeks, guys, that's challenging. I mean, that's convicting, right? As, as leaders of the Crossing Church, this is who Scott Kendrick and I want to be. Guys who can look you in the eye and say, and we're, we're agonizing for you. We're striving for your good. To weep with you as you suffer from trials. To fight with you against sin that comes against you. To rejoice with you at victories that you see and growth you experience. It's, being a pastor is not being a CEO of an organization where we're just indifferent and we're hiring and firing and just making stuff happen. Being a pastor is not being a, a manager of a business being a pastor is not even being the coach of a team. Being a pastor is being a shepherd of a flock where we get down in the mud and the, and the grit of life, the ugly things of life. We're invested completely in your lives, agonizing with you for, the, for your good, for your benefit, for your joy, for your soul. And as we strive and as we agonize by God's grace, our challenge to you is agonize and strive with us. 
will never call you to do something that we're not already striving to do. And so go with us on this journey and let's share in the agony and striving of becoming more and more a healthy church. I mean, who signs up to agonize with others? Let's have a a group to get together and agonize together. We do. Church does. The people of God do. Followers of Jesus do. It's who we are. It's what we're made for. And so let's go. Let's go together. Where these four qualities that I see in this passage that characterize a healthy church, four qualities I see in us in varying degrees. So you can kind of do a self-examination of yourself, a self-examination of us as a crossing church. Four qualities we want to see more and more. Are these the only qualities that make up a healthy church? No. But these are definitely four qualities that must be present in a healthy church. You can't just dismiss one of these. So first we see the quality of spirit. Spirit. That we are a strong people because the Holy Spirit is in us. Paul says in verse 2 that our hearts may be encouraged. Or your Bible may say strengthened. This means we're a strong people because we have the Holy Spirit. We are strong because we have the Holy Spirit. How do we see that in the text? Well, first think of the word heart. Biblically, the word heart refers not just to emotions. That's how we think of heart. Heart is emotions. It's how you feel. So, you know, you love with all of your heart. Your heart has this ooey-gooey feeling for somebody else. Valentine's Day is all about loving people with a heart. So you see... Hearts all over the place at Valentine because it's all about love. It's all about a, a naked baby in a diaper shooting people with arrows. Where? In the heart. So their hearts will love somebody else. That's what heart is in our culture. It's emotional. But in the biblical times, in the Eastern culture, that's not at all what the heart referred to. It didn't refer to just emotions. In fact, in the biblical language, the emotions were actually centered in the gut, the bowels. So when you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus was moved with compassion, literally in the original language, he was moved in his gut, moved in his bowels. That was feeling, right? And we, and we get that. Like we understand how in your gut there is emotion and feeling. Like people can be so nervous they say they have butterflies in their tummy, as Sarah told me the other day. People, people can be so nervous or anxious that they can't eat because if I eat something I may throw it up. Like, so even though we don't associate the gut with feeling, we get how people could associate the gut with feeling. But the heart was more than just feeling in the biblical times. The heart referred to the totality of the person, the essence of who you are. Like your, not just your emotions, but your will, your desires, your personality, your, your, your mind, everything about who you are is symbolized in the heart. When you read the word heart in scripture, it's talking about the core essence of who you are. And Paul is here longing for them to be strengthened, encouraged in the heart. And so what is he talking about? Being strengthened or encouraged? Well, let's dig a little deeper into the original language of the New Testament. We've mentioned before that we want to teach the Bible to you in a way where you don't need a seminary degree and you don't need stacks of commentaries and knowledge of the ancient languages in order to understand the Bible. We don't want to be Bible gurus who have this special insight to the Bible that you can't get because you haven't been to seminary and you don't know the original languages and you have to keep coming to us for answers. We want you to be self-feeding. 
You, you've got the, the author of Scripture living in you. You've got a community of faith, brothers and sisters, with the author of Scripture living in them. So it's, this is what I think the Spirit's telling me the Word says. Brothers and sisters, DNA group, mission community, whatever, what do you think? Well, I think you're crazy. Or no, that sounds about right. You work it out together. And so we become a people who are self-feeding, in community, understanding Scripture together. But, but at the same time, understand the Bible was written, finished, over 2,000 years ago. It took about 1,500 years to write the scriptures by about 40 men in a culture that's vastly different from our culture today, in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic. And so imagine you get in a time machine, you go back to that day and age, and you start talking to those people about smartphones and the NBA and cars and movies and they're looking at you, and you're doing it in English, they can't even understand you, and if they could, they wouldn't understand what you're talking about. You would need a translator, right? So come fast forward 2,000 years to today, we have the Bible, by God's grace, miraculously preserved in languages that we can understand. It's not Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. We, we understand English. But we don't hear Scripture the same way the original audience heard Scripture. That was their culture. They, they got the references. They got the cultural nuances of the language. They, they, they heard it directly from the source. We here in Western world, we're, we're cut off from that. So there, there is a gap there that we have to bridge. And so God has graciously given the church scholars and linguists and theologians who help us bridge that gap. And they're helpful to use from time to time. And this is one of those cases. David Platt said that knowing the Bible in the original languages versus just English is like watching a football game on a huge plasma screen versus watching a football game on the 50-yard line 10 rows up. They're, they're both great experiences. You still see the game. But one just gets you a little bit closer to the action. Right? Unless you're at Cowboy Stadium, then you can do both. Right? So, digging into the language behind, strengthen or encourage, you find a word that means to come alongside, to help. And what's interesting is the root word for encourage or strengthen is the same exact root word used for the Holy Spirit. Parakaleo, or as the Holy Spirit is called in the New Testament, the paraclete. Some of you who grew up in church may have heard that term before. John 14, 26. But the helper, paraclete, Parakaleo, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Paul is literally saying that we, all of who we are, the totality of our being, our hearts, that we would be helped, aided, strengthened, encouraged, and the ultimate source of that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And so we find that Paul's desire for them and for us this quality that we, we find in a healthy church is that we are a strong people because we have the Holy Spirit, the source of life and strength and encouragement, because we have the parakaleo, the paraclete living in us, empowering us, leading us, filling us, controlling us. Paul uses the same exact word, the same exact way in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, catch this, and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort, paragaleo is the root word there, same word that we translate as encourage or strengthen back in Colossians 2.2. 2. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Comfort your hearts. How? It says there, through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
May the Lord our Jesus Christ himself, parentheses, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. How does Jesus Christ himself comfort us? He's not here. He's gone. He's ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. How does Jesus himself comfort us? The Holy Spirit, right? Jesus sends the Spirit. The Father and Son send the Spirit. And having, get this, the Spirit in us, filling us, is equivalent to having Jesus Christ himself comforting us. That's amazing. Our minds should be blown by that reality. It's the same thing Jesus said at the end of Matthew, right before he ascends into heaven. Lo, I'm with you, talking to his disciples, always, even to the end of the age. How does he do that if he zips right up to the right hand of the Father? Because he sends the Spirit. The Spirit comes. So, church, see the unity and the diversity of the triune nature of God. There is a Father, there is Son, there is Spirit. But when we have the Spirit with us and in us, we have the Son with us and in us also. We have Jesus, and who else gives us strength and power other than the king of the universe living inside the temple of God? And so today, where are you weak? Today, where do you need to be strengthened and encouraged? Where are you most discouraged in life? What is God calling you to do? And your immediate thought is, I don't know if I can do that. Where's God calling you to obey and you're struggling to obey because possibly you've had so many failures that you don't see how you can possibly have victory and success. Be encouraged, Christian. Be strengthened, Christian. You have all you need because you have Jesus because you have the Spirit inside of you. Just as Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 to have the eyes of their heart opened to see, verse 19 and 20, what is the immeasurable, look at this, greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The same, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of you, Christian. What else do you want? What else do you need? Be encouraged. We are a strong people because we have the Holy Spirit, not because we have strength, but because we have Him. And He is all we need to do everything God calls us to do. A healthy church is filled with believers who know this power, who experience this power, and this power is evident in them. Do you see a body of believers walking in, living in, experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, do you see that that would be more transformational to this city than if we had 10 times the number of people, 10 times the size of this building, 10 times the resources, 10 times the gifts and talents of our leaders? Do you see that being a Spirit-empowered people together, living out our mission, would be much more transformational if it's done in the power of the Spirit? There were 120 people gathered in Acts chapter 1, waiting for the Spirit to come. As Jesus told them, you go back and wait for the Spirit. The Spirit comes, they begin a movement called the church, that by Acts 17 is turning the world upside down. The book of Acts is called the Acts of the church? 
No, it's called the acts of the Holy Spirit. The acts of the Holy Spirit, it's not what they were doing, it's what the Spirit was doing through them. What will our city look like, our homes, our marriages, our relationships, our jobs, as we more and more become a people through whom the acts of the Spirit show up? We are a strong people, not because of our skills and abilities, but because we have the Holy Spirit. But, but don't do this. Don't see this power like we're a bunch of individualistic spiritual superheroes who are out fighting the, against evil in the world. This is not something to be enjoyed individually. This is something to be experienced in community. And that's the second trait of a healthy church that we see in verse 2, community. And Paul says it like this, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Being knit together in love. And so we see that gospel-centered unity is flavored by selfless love. Now, now here's the deal. Because of the gospel, we are united. We already have that because of the gospel, right? Knitting is taking individual threads of cotton, silk, whatever fabric you're using, and weaving and shaping them and knitting them so that the individual threads become indistinguishable as the object takes shape, right? They're so closely woven that people say, I like that shirt, I like those shorts, I like that dress. They don't say, I like those 300,000 threads that are woven together into this fabric. Each individual thread becomes one with each other as they're knitted and woven together. They lose their individualness as they become a part of the, the whole. That is who we are as the family or community of God's people. Many members, one body. Paul would encourage believers to work to maintain this unity in Ephesians 4, 3-6 by pointing them to the source of their unity. They are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Eager to maintain, fight for the unity, the bonds of peace that you have. Why? Because you're one. Because of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit that you all share in common. The unity is so strong, guys. Paul even speaks as though we lose some of our distinctiveness being a part of the body. Like we'll see later on in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10 through 11. That having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, here in this new self, this body, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. You see a very similar thing in the book of Galatians. We have this new identity, this new self through Christ, which gives us this this new identity that, that actually supersedes how we may tend to classify ourselves. In other words, our identity together in the body of Christ as as part of Christ becomes even more um, um, characteristic of who we are rather than Greek or Jew, Scythian, barbarian, slave or free. And even Galatians go so far as to say man or woman. This is positionally, guys, who we are. Jesus prayed for this unity in John chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. It's amazing unity. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one 
so that the world may notice that, may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Did you notice in that passage, and I highlighted it, how unity is tied to mission? The Father and Son and the Spirit are one, so he's praying for us to be one. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Positionally, guys, we have this unity because we share in Christ. We share the same spirit, the same baptism, right? But Paul adds this. We're knitted together in love. This unity that we have already must be flavored by love. Positionally, we are one, but this is where we have to work that this oneness be flavored by love. The two enemies of our love-flavored unity can be found in 1 John chapter 3. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed, and in truth. The two enemies of love-flavored unity that we see in this passage are jealousy, which leads to hate and murder. Maybe not physical murder, but heart murder. And the second enemy is indifference. You need something from me? Nah. Nah. My heart is closed to you in your time of need. Those are the two enemies of love-flavored unity, but also see the remedy of the gospel. The remedy of the gospel. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were sinners, jealous and indifferent, Christ died for you. This is how we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And because of God's love for us in Christ, because of his love um, is in us and his love flows through us to others so that we don't treat each other out of jealousy and indifference. We treat each other out of humble, selfless sacrifice. This is love-flavored unity. Philippians 2, 3-5, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How is this possible? Because you have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Humility is the foundation for selfless, sacrificial love. Counting others is more significant than yourselves. If Cain would have counted Abel as more significant than himself, he wouldn't have been jealous of Abel's offering when God approved of Abel's offering and not of his. If we count others, our brother in need, as more significant than ourselves, when our brother comes to us in need, we're like, how can I help? What can I give? What can I sell to help you out? The source of our humility is Christ who humbled himself, even to the point of death. 
death on the cross so that we are one body knit together and as we selflessly serve each other out of humility, then we love each other and our unity becomes flavored by love and then the world begins to see something that they don't see anywhere else. They begin to see a unity that points them back to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And that takes us to the third quality of a healthy church and that's the mission. The mission. Found in verses 2 and 3. As a healthy church, we see and we enjoy the full riches that we have in Christ. One commentator said that this verse, verse 3, right before Paul gets to his purpose verse, the purpose of the letter, verse 4, Paul sums up the entire chapter 1 in verse 3. So look at verse 2 and 3. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full uh, full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom, Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You don't think Jesus is enough, and so you're tempted to turn to other things that we'll find out, Old Testament rituals, mysticism, asceticism, where you're like this radical monk, uh, denying yourself certain things to be closer to God. You, You think that that's where the fullness of God is found, the knowledge of God is found, and you think that that's where God's hidden His mystery, and where you have to discover it. No, it's not. It's in Christ. It's in Christ the fullness of God, the mysteries of God, the treasure of God is found hidden in Christ. And Paul was encouraged by what he saw in these believers. Like he didn't think that they were missing this. Look at verse 5. He says, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He saw good order and firmness in their faith in Christ. Paul did not see a church filled with sin and turning away from Christ like Corinth in Galatia. He saw a church that was doing well, but, but being challenged, like warning them a challenge is coming. Be on guard against it. In other words, as one, as one writer put it, the book of Colossians is not um, a medicine to remedy a problem. It's a vaccination against the coming virus because they were, they were living it. He saw it in them. And Paul says here, verse verse 3, that it's hidden in Christ. Don't think of that word hidden like a buried treasure where you've got to find a map and you've got to find where X marks the spot and you've got to get shovels and dig it up to discover this this mystery that's hiding from you. You've got to go go find it. Don't think of hiddenness as a, 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 a buried treasure. That's the basic premise for what would later become the Gnostics, the secret knowledge. That's the basic premise of a lot of non Christian groups. That there's, there's secret knowledge, there's hidden knowledge, that if you get in the group, you pay your dues, you do good enough, eventually you'll get to this level of maturity and you'll see things that, that you're not seeing right now. It's kind of hidden from you until you prove yourself. It's very common in non-Christian groups. But that's not what Paul is saying. Don't think of hiddenness as buried treasure. Think of hiddenness as a bank deposit. The mystery, the wisdom, the knowledge of God in Christ is like a sum of money deposited into a bank account that you have full access to. It's yours. You get as many checks as you want. You get as many debit cards as you want. You get as many cash withdrawals as you want. It's yours. It's yours. It's stored up, put away for you in Christ. Other religions hide the deeper things from those who prove themselves worthy. Prove yourself and then you get to the deeper things. It's only Christianity that we get everything from day one. 
Everything. It's all just dumped on us. Here is everything you need, Christ. The fullness of the treasures of the wisdom, the wonders of God, it's all found in Christ, and you get all of Him on day one. You don't get just like part of Jesus, and then maybe after year one, you get a little bit more of Jesus. You get it all from day one. Enjoy it. See it. Savor it. Treasure it. Right? This is our, this is our mission, that we believe we are created in God's image to know, love, and enjoy God. But we know because of sin in us that image is broken. That image is in desperate need of reconciliation. We're scarred by sin. We're scarred against God. We don't have hearts that naturally go to God. We have hearts that naturally bend away from God. And that that image needs redemption. So through Christ, we have a way back to God who made us. Through Christ, the image is redeemed and restored. And through Christ, we know the God who made us. The God who loved us. Through Christ, we get to know God, love God, enjoy God. That's imperfect now. Like one day, that's going to be perfectly enjoyed and experienced. Today, it's imperfect, right? We have days where it is so good. Man, God feels so close. And you're just like, why can't every day be like today? Why can't every time in the Word be like this time in the Word? Every time in prayer be like this time in prayer. And then you have days where it's not. And he seems distant. One day it's not going to be like that. But, but for the first time, because of Christ, we see him. We see God. We see the God who made us. We have him. We love it because we have Christ. And we're consumed with this mission that Christ has given us to spread this good news, this gospel, far and wide so more and more people can come alive to this reality of this treasure that is Christ. So more and more Christians can wake up to the treasure that you have in Christ. Are you awake to that reality this morning? Our mission is essentially, as one person famously put it, one beggar telling another beggar where he found the bread. And that bread is Christ. As John Piper's put it, mission exists because worship doesn't. Guys, there are millions and millions who don't see and savor the treasure that is Jesus. Hundreds and thousands all over our city this morning, sitting in buildings just like this, who don't see and savor the treasure that is Jesus. Despite the fact they claim to know Jesus and do religious things, they don't see and savor and love and experience the fullness of the treasure that is Christ. Here he is, see him, enjoy him, love him, and one day there's going to be countless numbers singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. One day all of creation will fully and finally worship him, and on that day there will be no more global mission because there is universal worship. A healthy church is a community of believers knit together in love, filled and empowered with the Spirit, seeing and enjoying the treasure that is Christ as they proclaim Him to those who don't treasure Him. That's our mission. And then lastly, the fourth quality of a healthy church, verse 4. I say this, purpose of the letter, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, which means... That we not be deluded by plausible arguments. It's pretty straightforward there. Not really a lot I can add. 
The word for delude or deceive is found here in, in James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so here we see the importance of the word in the life of the healthy church. This is the importance of the word. Spirit, community, mission, word. When I worked in a bank in college, one of the things that uh, we had to watch out for at that time was counterfeit bills. Is when the U.S. government was changing their currency, putting a lot of new security features in them, and, and really changing how $100 bills worked, or, or looked rather. And uh, they did $100 bills in 50s and 20s and all from there. And the bank that I worked for spent exactly zero hours in training us how to recognize counterfeit bills by showing us counterfeit bills. Like they never showed us one example of a counterfeit bill. They spent zero time showing us that. But they spent a lot of time and had posters on the wall to show us what genuine, authentic money looked like. So that as we recognize genuine, authentic, true money and all the security features, when we had a counterfeit bill come in, and we did, immediately you're like, that's not real. That's fake. To guard ourselves against plausible arguments, we consume ourselves, not with knowing every single plausible argument that's out there, but by knowing the truth, by knowing Christ, by knowing our doctrines, and knowing it so well so that as soon as you hear something that's a little off, you're like, that's not right. Right? So the word is deep in us. The word is fresh on our minds and hearts. That as soon as we hear anything counter to it, we see it. We are people of the word. Yes, to know God, love God, obey God, but also to guard and protect the doctrine of God. We can't proclaim on mission a God we don't know. And you don't know God apart from his word. This is why before Paul ever deals with the false teachers, he spends all of chapter 1 giving us some of the richest, sweetest, strongest doctrines of who Jesus is. So that by the time he gets to the false doctrines in chapter 2, you're already not only seeing that they're false, but you begin to think, these are ridiculous. Like, who would believe that? You see, the tricky thing about false teaching is it sounds plausible. But as Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians 2, there's a difference between plausible words and powerful words. Where he told those believers, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not, not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Our power against plausible words of false teaching is found in Jesus, Him crucified, knowing Him, proclaiming Him, protecting the Word, being grounded in the Word more than anything else. And so a healthy church has spirit, community, mission, and the Word. Huge foundational realities that are central to who we are. We share in the agony striving to see these realities in us. So where are we? Where are we in each of these areas? I mean, I have my opinions about areas that we're strong in, areas that we need the grace of God to work. Where am I as an individual in those areas? Spirit, community, mission, and word. I'm in desperate need of God's grace to grow me and mature me and point my heart to the gospel. And so, yes, today, let the Holy Spirit examine your hearts. How much do you live a spirit-empowered life? I mean, 
Some of us maybe need to ask, do you even have the Holy Spirit? Like, seriously. Is the Holy Spirit even in you? Do you are you alive in the Spirit? How much do you let love and humility flavor your relationships? Selflessness. Do you see and enjoy the treasure that is Christ and give your life so others can have what Christ has given you? Are you grounded in the Word? Do you let the Word and your love of the Word because the Word reveals? Do you have a love of the Word because the Word reveals Christ? So examine ourselves this morning, right? Let's see where we need to repent. But don't, don't remain in despair. Look to Christ. See Christ. He is the solution to our greatest need. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. Your grace would allow us to see this, savor this, understand this, desire this. Your grace would sustain our life so we could sit in a, a service, a, a worship gathering like this, and hear the glorious truths and realities of who you are and what you've done for us. God, we believe you brought us together to be this kind of church. Because we believe you want us to be this kind of church in a city that needs this kind of church. And God, there are other churches that are doing some of these things well, and we pray you'd bless them and use them and multiply them and, and do the same with us so that more and more of our city would know Jesus and love Jesus and treasure Jesus. There's nobody like him. And I pray for all who are here, God, that have heard your truth that are convicted, that need to repent, which is every one of us, God, that you would bring us to that point of repentance and faith and trust in Jesus alone. Reveal our sins, but most of all, reveal Christ, the remedy for our brokenness. We ask these things in His strong, powerful name. Amen.